Here it comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording, over, lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your words spoken through Peter, and Lord, as your man, Pastor Mike, comes to share these words with us. We pray that you would uh, allow his heart to be completely overwhelmed by your Holy Spirit, that his words would be your words, and that we, your church, would hear exactly what you would have for us to hear, and that we would receive it into our hearts as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I uh, always want to make a couple of clarities about what happens in the church. You know, we have, we have different levels of alarm in the church. You know, red alarm is, is, you know, like if a child escapes from, you know, our education ministry, which has never happened, or we lose our offering plates, which has never happened. But, but there's also a yellow alarm level. This morning, about 7.30, the donuts hadn't arrived. Now, that's yellow alarm but I want you to feel comfortable in the fact that they're here. And I also want to invite you, uh, by way of, of telling you that story, uh, next week we have a month of Sunday's breakfast here in the church. And so whether the donuts come or not, uh, our men will be down there kicking out their normal great fare, and we hope you'll come. You know, when you came into this building today, and, and maybe when you were preparing to go yesterday and all, come yesterday and all that sort of thing, uh, you might have said to yourself or said to one of your friends, your family members, well, I'm going to church. And, and I want to just make a quick distinction here for you because it's important as to where we're going and what we're all about. Church is the body of believers. Church may even be the building from time to time. Church is, is, is who we are as a people. And we come together as a church to worship. What we do in here is worship. 
We have come to worship the living God. And worship at Marian Methodist means that we're going to receive some teachings, and teaching in specific. And I will tell you that, that our teaching here at Marian Methodist is absolutely influenced by our passion for the mission this church has. And you know that mission. I'm going to ask you to say it with me. We're not going to put it on the screen. You have it in your bulletin. You should have it in your mind. So, and this is not a test for me. I already know it, okay? So the mission of the church is what? The mission of the church is to make... Wow, we're passing that. We know our mission. So then, when you come, and if you're a visitor among us, I, I kind of want to tell you this uh, about that, is because that's our mission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We will unapologetically, Pastor Keith and myself, be led by the Scriptures and found our teachings upon the Scriptures, completely trusting that the Holy Spirit of God will work through them and equip the body of believers for the work of the church through its worship services. So today... We come to a teaching piece from 1 Peter. We've worked through 1 Peter. We've been listening to what Peter has been saying to us all through this book. And we come to Peter's closing remarks, and he says, says some things that are very clear, some to the leaders of the church of every level, and some <clears throat> to the people of the church at every level. And it starts like this for me. I went to Starry School when I was a little kid, and in third grade, I had a P.E. teacher named Mr. Singer. Tom Singer was my P.E. teacher. And during this time of the year, we got to, in P.E., do the football time. That was, of course, my favorite time in P.E. Least favorite was obviously tumbling, but I was able to fall down, but that's, apparently it was more than that. Um, but Mr. Singer, in his teachings on, on football, I remember him. Of course, remember, a third grader is only about this big. They're eight years old or so. And he wanted to teach us about how to get in a proper football stance. So he took a linebacker's stance. He might have been a linebacker in college or something. He says, now you get a firm foundation. And he got down like this. And he says, I want to show you how firm this is. Boys, and he got a bunch of us. And he says, just try to knock me off my foundation. Now, wasn't as smart then as I am now. Because back then I said, well, if we want to beat him, we'll roll in the back of his knees. But we didn't. So we came up to him, and we pushed him, and we hit him, and four or five of us with him. And boy, Mr. Singer just stood there just like this. And he says, see, boys and girls, if you have a firm foundation in football, you'll be able to face whatever adversity comes to you. What Peter is saying to us as he closes out his first letter is that if you have a firm foundation in the faith, you will be able to stand fast, to stand firm in whatever life brings to you. And so his closing remarks to the church in this letter come in two pieces. First, to the leaders of the church. The leaders, are, the leaders of the church are responsible to lead the church. Now, it sounds obvious, but let me fill out what I mean. See, pastors, Sunday school teachers, circle leaders cooks in our kitchen, trustees, are all leaders in the church. And we have this high responsibility to lead, to, to be out in front of people. We can't be reluctant in our leadership because, you see, when you are picked by the pastors or the other leaders in the church to be a leader, it means that you're consecrated and anointed to lead that section or part of this body of believers, the church, 
for a certain period of time. You are, such as it was, God's choice. And, and I think sometimes we are reluctant to lead, regardless of our age, maybe even regardless of what we do outside of here. We were at camp up at Grand Mesa Camp in far western Colorado years and years ago. I had 120 junior high kids with me, and I'd brought in a kid named Brian McKinley. He was a college student, first guy I ever saw to wear a Britney Spears microphone, to play the guitar and lead us in singing. And he'd do, like, this was old school songs. He used to have this song that went like this. Will you, won't you, ain't you gonna, if I coax you, won't you wanna, ah, come on, you said you would, why don't you wanna talk about Jesus? And he'd speed it up and speed it up and speed it up. I'll tell you what. I don't know if I'd ever seen, at that point in my ministry, I was probably 25 at the time, anybody move a bunch of kids into a frenzy like that for Christ. And we were having lunch. Brian's wiping himself off with sweat because he'd just done a 25-minute leadership set that led up to one of our teaching times. And I said, Brian, you are a fantastic leader. He said, oh, I'm not a leader. I don't want to be a leader. I said, hey, dude, they're all following you. You better go somewhere good, right? When we're anointed and appointed to lead, we have to pick up that responsibility to actually lead the church. When I knelt down at Hilton uh, Veterans Auditorium some 30 years ago and, and let the bishop put his hands on my head and he said my full name and then the next words he said was, take authority. Take authority. Because God has anointed the leaders of the church with His authority to lead the church to the places that He desires it to be. So leaders are responsible to lead. Leaders are what they do, do exactly what their name says. And they're responsible to lead God's church on God's mission, not their own. They'll have their own ideas. But the responsibility is to lead God's church on God's mission. And secondly, leaders are to care for God's flock. Seems right, doesn't it? I, I remember <clears throat> I was a young pastor and I'd been, I had a big bustling youth ministry, loved it, was there five years in Colorado Springs, St. Paul's, and it was this exact weekend. It was Labor Day weekend, and the bishop had asked me in just a period of 12 days to move to another church. That, that their pastor had had a health situation, all that, and they needed a pastor. And I'll tell you about this about youth ministries probably the worst time to leave is right when school is beginning. And so I was torn. I didn't want to go. But I knew that it was my moment and I had to take it. And I went into my boss's office, the senior pastor, and I said, Gene, I hate to leave my kids. I just can't leave my kids. And he says, hold on, Mike. They were never yours. They were never your kids. You leave them where you found them, which is in the hand of God. Leave them where you found them, right in the hand of God. Let's see what Jesus says about this. Jesus and Peter are having this, or Jesus and Peter are having this conversation on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in a resurrected experience of Jesus. And Jesus, it goes like this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he says. You know that I love you, Jesus says. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus answered him, asked him for the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. You see, leaders are to care for and feed God's flock 
because it was never their own. One of the things that you and I have seen in the past 20 or 30 years is, and maybe even before that, I just might not be aware of that, we've seen these famous preachers, clergymen, grow out these great uh, cults of personality, and then they've fallen or by, because of this, that, or the other thing, but they've lost their flock because they've lost sight of whose flock it was. It, it was always God's flock. And leaders are to lead the flock of God, not the flock of Mike or the flock of Keith or the flock of Vicki or the flock of the Eve Circle in the UMW or the Thursday morning Bible study in the Methodist men. Those aren't our flocks. They are all the flock of God. And ministries will almost always falter and fail when the focus moves away from following the great shepherd to following some other shepherd. This is important for leaders to understand, regardless of what level of the church you're leading at. And leaders need to lead by example and service. I came across a guy once, met him in a small group, Manuel Scott, um, great Baptist preacher. I I would say he's a great big Baptist preacher in an African-American church, but he's a man of diminutive size. But when he preaches, the Holy Spirit just flows out. I remember him teaching some of us young pastors once. He said, fellas, you need to understand this. To be a good leader, what you have to be first is a good Christian man or woman. Be a good Christian man or woman. Throw yourself at Jesus' feet. So then even if you do duddy ideas, people will will know they've been led by a man or woman whose heart is completely in God. I, I love that advice. Because leaders are to lead by example and service. So if they're not embracing the teachings of Christ, if they're not over their head being dripped on by the Holy Spirit, then they can't lead well. Because the authority in the church is granted by service, not power. Just because someone has position or place doesn't mean they have respect and authority. It just means they have power. And in the church, we follow, and I've always in my life followed people, whether they had the right title or not, I followed who the leaders were that I thought were were filled with the Holy Spirit and and were serving God. Here's what Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 10. Jesus called them together, his disciples, and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, leaders in the church at every level are to concern themselves, and do concern themselves from what I've seen in my life, with what they can give to God and his people, not what they can get. Every leader I know, I believe that every leader that I'm engaged with at Marion Methodist Church is is a man or woman who loves to pour themselves into God, who just loves pouring themselves into his mission, his church, in every way they can. And they're not thinking a certain thing about what they can get out because they're putting so much of themselves in. Now, now, because of that, because the leaders are so compassionate and so filled with Jesus Christ and so seeking to lead the people, there is this caution that, that Peter makes here in the Scriptures. And, and there's this 
caution that I think all of us in the church need to have. I mean, I need to have it in relation to my bishop and district superintendent and others. And that is simply true. It is that because the, the leaders are serving, because the leaders are all in to give themselves to Christ, that does not give permission. Hear this. That does not give permission to spiritually abuse leaders because they're willing to serve you. It does not give us permission to spiritually abuse our leaders because they're willing to serve us. I'll give you an example. I had a family leave our church a few years ago. True story. I know it to be true. Do you know why? Because the pastor was in the grocery store looking for meat. I did not see them. But to them, I did not address them or speak to them. And they left the church because of that. Now, I'm not invisible. They could have spoke to me, but they did not. And, of course, they were able to spread that poison around part of our town. We had a family leave the church here a handful of years ago, about 10 years ago, because the chair people of our Easter flower committee that, that buys the flowers for the front of the church had the audacity to sprinkle in some tulips and spring flowers among the lilies, and therefore, it simply just wasn't Easter. I'm not making this stuff up. I was at a coffee shop this week. Pastor Keith and I and some others had a meeting there, and I got there early because well, I'm old. Um, and <laughs> you laugh because you know. All right, those of us who laughed, we know. Um, I got there early, and there was a group of committed church people next to me in a little conclave over there. And one of them was telling this story which actually decimated my spirit, but I understood it. This summer, their church took two of their services and combined them during the course of the summer because less attendance, probably. And they changed the seating. Their chairs move, and they changed the seating direction. So this person was quite a bit telling the story about how, the, about, actually fairly pridefully, I thought, about how they'd gone to their pastor and said, you know what, I'm not going to church this summer because it's not at the right time and the seats aren't facing the right way. And I say to all three of those things, no, no, and no. There will always be a time when my preferences and the purpose of the church are in conflict. There are always are going to be times when your preferences and your purposes may not meet completely. But the purpose of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And I do not think he cares, A, what kind of meat I buy, or if I saw you were not in the grocery store. I don't think he cares what kind of flowers we have in the church. And I don't think he cares which way the seats face. What he does care is which way our hearts face and if our lives are in him or not. You see, I will not, I will not always like what goes on in the church. Or what's going on in the church but I will always pour myself into it and all the other leaders in this church will pour themselves into it because they love the Lord and so we need to remember because I'm a follower in a lot of areas of my life that that doesn't give me just because my bishop or district superintendent or some of you are pouring yourself into something that I may not dig fully and completely that I can spiritually abuse them or you no good leader I know not one 
servers because they expect any reward. And yet, look what the Bible says. The leaders of the church are to be rewarded when Christ comes in victory. When Christ comes in victory, the leaders of the church, every leader, every level, is rewarded in victory because in leading the church at any role, they've served his purpose for the church. And faithful leaders are blessed with the oneness in Christ that they have desired for all people. Now, Peter's closing remarks then turn to address the people of God. Now, that's all of us. So let's look at the people of the church. The people of the church are to humble themselves before God, to have this humility of faith. And that starts with this, is to be certain that we believe that God cares for us. You see, humility means that you and I have concerns, problems, issues that we cannot solve. There are things in my life I cannot solve. There is no subset of things that I can do to solve this problem or undo this situation. Those things are in all of our lives. Faith is being certain that God cares about those things. Humility means recognizing that God cares about him. And because of his care for you, you then, and hear this, those of us, because we struggle with this stuff, when we believe that God cares for us, we can find serenity and peace in the simple fact that God cares for us. And we can be certain that God is willing and able. You see? This is what faith is, is to be certain that God is willing and able. See, our serenity and our, and our, is grounded in our trust that God will deliver us from these worries, these sufferings, these problems to his destiny. Not maybe what we want, but to his destiny. Let me, let me give you two ex, ex, stories to, to explain this. Years ago, I had a friend. Uh, well, she's still my friend, but she was a different age then. She was rising past her 45th birthday. Never been married, never been engaged. She had boyfriends and stuff like that during her life, but never had been married. And it was kind of her main thing because she had all this passion that she wanted to give to a person to be in a marriage relationship. She had all this love that she wanted to share with someone else. She was a productive human being in her job and all that kind of stuff. And she came in and we talked for a long time. And I said, you know, Cindy, we just need to pray that God will deliver you from this to whatever he wants in his destiny. And we prayed, and, you know, to be honest with you, she wasn't just working the pastor. She was working her Methodist circle. She was working a prayer group to have them pray for her. And guess what? Now, I don't believe in magic. I believe in the power of prayer and the influence of people, the people of God. A man, Tom McKee, walked into her life. Just walked into her life. They've been married now for a handful of years on our happiest clams. And I remember at her first anniversary, Cindy called me and said, do you remember how we prayed that God would deliver me into whatever his destiny was? She says, I'm grateful it was this destiny. Now, I had a friend, Bob, same, same congregation, who had bone cancer. He got bone cancer. He called me out to his house. I went out and met with his uh, wife, Vivian, and we talked for a long, long time. And he said, I remember him saying in his chair, he says, I just need some sort of deliverance from this. He was struggling with faith. He was struggling with horrible pain because that's what bone cancer brings to you. And, and, and I, we prayed for deliverance to whatever God's destiny was. A couple weeks later, he called me. And by that point, 
You know, a couple weeks later, we're at the point where the hospice bed is in the living room. You know, you've seen that in your family, and you know that difficulty, and you know what's next. And Bob had, had uh, jaundiced quite a bit, and he called me over to his bedside, didn't have much voice left, and he said, I'm okay, Mike. God has delivered me. Wasn't what I chose or would choose, but I'm okay with his destiny. Those deliverances are very different because one got the deliverance and destiny that they really dreamed of and hoped for. The other got one that, that, that they didn't necessarily hope for, but, were, but both were willing to accept that this was the deliverance and the destiny that God have us, had for them. You see, those different deliverances, both were founded in the fact that God is, cares for us and he is willing and able to take us to the deliverance and the destiny, de- destiny that he has for us, maybe not that we have for ourselves. Now, I want to address one human problem, a huge problem of our time right here, right now. Because those things that I talked about just a minute ago in those stories were things that were put upon others or that just, just simply happened to people. You know what? Sometimes we put our problems on ourselves, don't we? We cause these things ourselves. And I want to encourage those of you that might be here today struggling with some self-made problem, maybe an anger issue, maybe a, you know, alcohol, you know, whatever your issue is, maybe frustration that you've made yourself, a mess that you've made yourself. Because one of the biggest problems I see, and I hear it all the time out in the community and the people that I talk to, is that many people don't believe that God cares about the problems we made for ourselves. And I tell you what, you're wrong. Holy Scriptures tells us over and over, God cares about all of our problems, big and small. Even when we've made the mess ourselves, He is a loving parent, and He desires that mess cleaned up. And God wants you and cares about you, and when you turn to Him and repent in Him, you have to do that if you've made the mess yourself. You have to repent of whatever it is that you've done, and He'll clean up those burdens too. He'll take them right up off your shoulders. And third, in our humility... The people of Christ are to humble themselves before the Lord. We need to live for Christ. That's fully inclining our spirit towards Him. That's fully orientating our everything about our lives towards living in Christ. Because, because when, when we turn ourselves to Christ, God will take our worries away from Him, but that should be a call to action, not passivity. You can't just say, God took that for me. Once you're cleaned up, that should be a call to rise up and go do something about that with your life. Because here's what we know in the Christian church, and if you listen to Jesus, you see that trust and effort go hand in hand. And I talked to you about my sister, my sister Cindy. It wasn't like she stopped looking for men and just sat down in the church on the front altar and said, Well, God, bring me one by. And it wasn't like Bob Calton quit going to doctors or quit praying. You know, trust and effort in our Christian life go hand in hand. But we have to put in our part of the thing, trusting that God will do what's necessary. The second thing that, that Peter tells the church is to grow to each other. The mature in faith are to mentor those that are not so mature in faith. You know, there's a fundamental truth in our faith, and that is that it's been passed on from generation to generation. The mature in the faith have mentored the youngers in the faith. And you know how this goes, because the experienced can see what the inexperienced cannot see. That's always been true. I remember standing at a hospital 
24 years ago, I got my one-day-old baby in my arm, my first one. There was an older guy about my age standing beside me. And he looked at me and he said, Mike, enjoy every minute of this. It goes fast. You know why he could say that? Because he could see what I couldn't see. All I saw was stacks of diapers and learning how to read and learning how to walk and learning all that and all the effort that was going to go into it, but I didn't see all the joy in it and I didn't see how very quickly it came. And I remember when that kid got married last summer, that was part of my toast. I I quoted Mel and I said, you know, this morning I brought her home from the hospital. Yesterday, or or today at lunch, she graduated from high school. She went to college at one o'clock, two o'clock. She told me she had the man that she wanted and here we are. It went fast. Because the experienced can see what the inexperienced cannot. And the experienced have a responsibility to share what they know with the inexperienced in faith. And those of you that are not so new or not so old at your faith yet, you have the responsibility to be not so proud in your position that you will listen and that you will seek mentors out in the faith. Now, There is another side to this coin. The new in faith are to do what we call in business today, reverse mentor. We're supposed to reverse mentor. You know, older folks can benefit from fresh perspectives, can't you? I always like hearing the the, the new sometimes. If you look at American history, do do you know that our founding fathers were kids, right? Look up how old those guys were. Not one of them was 30. Look it up. You have kids leading that kind of revolution because they saw things in a fresh way. Now, that doesn't mean everything that the young person says is, is right, but, but I love sitting with young people. I have a friend, Doug Cloven. You raised him up here long before I got here. He's about 30 now, and I like to sit with him and talk about things of what the emerging church is seeing, about how marital relationships are going, what, what certain young people's perspectives of this and that on. And you saw Leandra here in your pulpit a few weeks ago. I love listening to 21-year-olds and seeing what their perspective on what's going on in the world today. And it's my response responsibility as an older person to listen to them they're not always right in everything and sometimes you know exuberance overwhelms you know efficiency and all that kind of stuff however that fresh wind of passion stirs the flame in my heart and i need to not be so proud in my position as an experienced person that i won't listen to the young or the new in the faith yeah, they might be wearing their baseball hat backwards. They might have big gauges in their ears and their arms might be covered with tattoos, but there's a good heart right in there that's fueled by the passion of Jesus Christ. And I have a lot to learn from them. And, and so do you. And that's part of how the church grows together. Be no, not so prideful that you won't listen because there's a lot of richness here. And thirdly, encourage and bless each other. Peter reminds us that we're all one. You know that, right? We say, well, our church has four or five. We're one church. We're the church of Jesus Christ whose mission is to make disciples for the transformation of the world. We are one in the church, and we need encouragement, and we need each other to bless us and to help us along the way because here's the fact, and you've heard it here before. Life is hard. Repeat after me. Life is hard. So we need each other. Amen. It's so true. We don't just need to have worship. We need to have a church that blesses and encourages others. 
And thirdly, Paul says, or Peter says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Resist evil. Resist evil. Here, here's the thing that I want Christians in the North American church to understand. We need to invest ourselves in understanding that evil exists. So often we just say, oh, it's our own mind or it's this or that. No. Biblical foundation through and through tells us evil exists. Let me give you a little example. I like watching Animal Planet, those kind of shows. I love watching the big cats, you know, the lions and stuff like that. One thing I can tell you for sure about lions, they never pick on anybody their own size. They do not. Do you know why? Because they're hungry and they want to devour what they pick on. So, so what do lions hunt? The weak, the straggling, the young, the sick. They chase them down. And just because this little adolescent gazelle doesn't believe in the existence of the lion, that doesn't mean it's not going to eat him. In the church, we need to understand that the lion is present. Satan is like a roaring lion, says the Scriptures, that's ready to devour the flesh, and in this case, the flesh of the church. Let me share with you a few things. Since the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, 43 million people have been killed because of their faith in him. Do you understand that? 43 million people. Evil exists. 100,000 people die. That's just light of the population of Cedar Rapids. Or about 11 during the course of this worship service. Every year. Because of their faith in Christ. Evil exists. The International Society for Human Rights, which is a secular organization, not some religious thing, reports that 80% of all religious discrimination in the world is directed at Christians. Evil exists. In 139 countries, that's 75%, three-quarters of the world's companies, of nations, in 139 countries, I mean, Christians openly face governmental-approved or led hostility. Evil exists. We're not so good here either, you know. Canceled the National Day of Prayer a few years ago because we didn't want to offend anybody. Had a different religion's prayer at the White House, but not that one, not ours. We're seeing encroachment coming on every corner to the Christian church. And yet we believe oftentimes that evil doesn't exist. The gazelle must believe the lion exists. The lion will target the sleeping, the struggling, the straggling. See, poor Satan warns us over and over again. That's who, that who's, I mean, Peter tells us Satan's going to attack the lonely. He's going to attack the helpless. He's going to attack the hurting. He's going to hurt those who are cut off from other believers. And we need to stand fast and believe that evil exists. And the best resistance to evil is to stand firm in the faith, founded in Jesus Christ, with eyes wide open and focused on Christ and Christ alone. And in that standing firm then, when we look at evil, I, I want to take this one more level because it's here in the Scripture is we need to, as a church, be able to embrace and teach a Christian understanding 
of suffering. You need to have a Christian perspective of human suffering. Nothing causes people to turn from God more than their understanding of suffering. I've, I've seen this throughout my ministry, throughout my life as a human being. If God is so good, why do the Egyptian Christians die? If God is so good, why did he let my grandmother get cancer and pass away? If God is so good, why did he let my parents get divorced? If God is so good, why was my children, well, my child born a March of Dimes child? I hear these kind of things all the time because our perspective of suffering seems to be punitive, as if God is putting these things on us. But what we need to understand is how the Christian fathers and how our Lord Jesus Christ himself viewed suffering. When when we're suffering, we think, I don't care, you know, you hit your thumb with a hammer, you don't think that's ever going to end, do you? I talked to one of my friends just yesterday who had food poisoning. And her words to me was, I can't make it, but I'd rather die than live through today. I mean, we know how that is. We think suffering's never going to end. But what the scripture says is that suffering, we need to have an eternal perspective on suffering because God does, and in comparison with eternity, whatever it is we're going through lasts just for a little while. Look what it says in 1 Peter 1, 6. We started the book with this. So be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for just a little while. See, that is, and and yes, sometimes. See, when you look at these scriptures, sometimes things are bad. They are, because life is hard. And sometimes things are worse than bad. They're very, very bad. And, says the Lord, Suffering is a this world thing. That's why Paul wrote this. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. Because we're all going to suffer. And God's followers are assured an eternal life in Christ where there will be no suffering. I love that passage in Revelation where suffering is blotted off. Every tear is wiped away. Mourning, death, everything. And this is what Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Keith has said this in sermons recently. I listened to him. Yes. Your heart may be in Christ, and you can turn to Christ. And yes, in the midst of that, your situation might not change. The suffering may persist. But understand this. When we suffer with Christ, we are encouraged to believe because this suffering lasts just a little while. We, we do not and cannot know how everything will turn out. We can't because we can't see what we can't see. What we know is that God holds our destiny, and it's magnificent. So I, I want to leave you with this because I think it's a faithful thing. Take, take a look at this quote from Martin Luther King. King said, Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. I love that because that is faith in our lives. We don't know how it's all going to turn out. But we believe that our destiny is in the magnificent hands of our God. So stand firm in the faith. Stand fast in the faith through all that we...
that we meet in our lives. And God will guide you to the place he desires you to go. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the words of Scripture that inspire us and strengthen us and guide us. We ask, O God, that we might stand firm, stand fast in you always. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a look at this. It's somebody you know. I I love the uh, Christian education. The uh, help on disciple class and uh, and the activities. There's always a a place to put yourself that, that you can help other people. Well, my method of giving is called regifting. Now, regifting is uh, is basically when you receive a present, you turn around and give it to someone else, someone that that uh, hopefully is more deserving or uh, or uh, can use it more. I feel that uh, God is more deserving, and uh, and. Since all gifts come from God, including uh, our time and our talents, that uh, that He should get the good stuff. My name is Fern Winship. These are the reasons that I give to Marian Methodist. Would you please join me in worshiping God this way? Would the ushers please come forward? <laughs>